2: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Scholarly Communication, the podcast about how knowledge gets known. I'm Daniel Shea, your host for today's interview with Melinda Baldwin, AIP Endowed Professor in History of Natural Sciences at the University of Maryland. Her book, Making Nature, the History of a Scientific Journal, was published by the University of Chicago Press in 2015. Scientists study nature. This simple statement will be, to anyone in the sciences anyway, ambiguous. And this ambiguity is a statement in itself about the topic of today's interview. Nature is the world, the universe, reality. Nature is one possible term for a scientist's object of inquiry. Sure, it has a bit of 19th century dust in its corners, especially when you write it with an old-fashioned capital N. Nature, giving it the look of a figure in a William Blake poem, And true again, most molecular biologists or particle physicists today will prefer to just write molecule or atom, be a bit more precise, that is, a bit more precise than just nature, all of everything. But nonetheless, nature, the word and the concept, lives on and has use to scientists. And this is where the ambiguity comes in for the scientist anyway, because this word nature also lives on and has use as a journal and as an institution that tops the totem of scientific publishing. Nature is a title, and in this journal, nature, an article is worth the proverbial right arm. Really, it's in these terms that scientists talk about this possibly most prestigious of journals in the sciences, nature. But this capital letter N, too, has a light coating of 19th century dust. This capital N also begins a word that If the journal had been founded in 1969 and not in 1869, well, if, then this word nature would probably have been passed over for something more contemporary, perhaps the lab, or maybe just research. How about discovery? But as things stand, which scientists today could imagine a world without nature? And there we have it again, that ambiguity. Nature, what is studied? Nature, where the studies appear? kind of makes a person wonder just how deeply this most looked-for, looked-to, and looked-up of the international journals in science has actually shaped the endeavors of scientists in recent history. For, if I do not belabor the metaphor, this restatement here of my opening words is also true. Scientists study the pages of nature, and the pages of nature are written by scientists. Because this, quite literally, in fact is what has gone on, and it is also what is going on in the practice of science, and more particularly in the practice of publishing science. The contributors to nature, the readers of nature, the worldwide interest in the debates and ideas and attitudes emanating from nature, have been the success of this once Victorian periodical by men of science, and this now top venue for the globe's top research staffed by scientists and journalists of all backgrounds, headquartered in London, and represented everywhere. You who write in the pages of nature, and you who read the pages of nature, it's you who have been making nature what nature is. The journal in this sense is a stand-in for general progress of science, and because a statement to this effect is so widely acceptable, and really so fair an assessment one journal located so centrally to the work of scientists of all fields, because this centrality of one British journal is an accepted norm by the communities of scientists everywhere, well, it's because of this that nature itself is tantamount to nature itself. But how? How has this British journal made it to this position? Why have scientists for decades sought to make these pages the place it for their research, thereby making nature nature? That is the story told by Melinda Baldwin in her book, Making Nature, the History of a Scientific Journal. And it is also the story that she can sketch out for us today, the phenomenon of nature. So let's begin today's episode, Melinda Baldwin and Making Nature. Melinda, welcome to Scholarly
0: Communication. Thank you so much for having me. I'm going to
1: just sort of jump right in and ask the big question, I suppose. What then did make nature because i mean in hindsight it all seems so improbable and of course as is always the case there was no one person who woke up and said so i'm going to make the kind of journal that nature is right <laughs> <laughs> i mean this just doesn't there never seems to be somebody controlling events of history and yet it has become such a standard of of the field that we can't imagine it away can we
0: No, no. And I think that it it can be hard to imagine a system of scientific publishing that doesn't have nature at the top of the hierarchy in terms of prestige. But when it was founded in 1869 by the astronomer Norman Lockyer, um, Lockyer's motivation was actually not to create a prestigious scientific journal that was going to be written by, by that was going to be written for the research community. Lockyer had a very specific vision. What he wanted was a publication that was going to be read by laymen. He wanted the writers to be qualified scientific uh, researchers, but he wanted the readership to be people from across all fields, um, all all professional groups, um, not not really across all uh, strata of society, I would say. He had a fairly elite audience in mind, but he really wanted the average reader to be a scientific layman, which I think is really remarkable when you consider that today, Nature is this achievement at the top of someone's CV that feels like a guarantee of tenure or promotion or future grants.
1: And I think that's one of the surprising things about this story is, as as, as you've just pointed out, I mean, Lockyer had in mind a very different journal than what it's become. And we see how much is just development and not direction, right? Things that... Uh, yeah if you like, evolve rather than are decided upon. I I mean, another good example that you explore in the book is how it went from a British journal to an international journal without necessarily input on at least one tenure of editor's side.
0: Yes, I think that's absolutely true. What you see looking at the history of nature is that when it changes, it's really not the editorial staff or the editor in chief saying, okay, now I want nature to be a research journal, or okay, now I want nature to have a lot more international contributors. the impetus for nature's changes comes from the contributor base itself. It comes from the scientific community. Time and time again, we see the contributors to nature remaking the journal to be what they want it to be at a particular moment in history.
1: And I have to say, that was one of the more eye-opening moments for me in the book. Uh, I, I mean, one of the strengths of the book as a history is just that you get on the ground as a reader. You really are not looking at nature from the perspective of today. In fact, there were times where I really wasn't thinking of today's nature while yeah. I was reading about it in 1910s or the 1920s, which is exactly what I think a historian, um, you know, wants to shoot for. But the other thing is, is, is just as you're saying, the how, how much the readership was there to shape what nature was an outlet for, a venue for that. That hadn't been clear to me. I think that that is really. And, and you and you put that up front as as a central finding, I would say.
0: Yeah, I think it really was one of the things that surprised me most that I'd expected to find that nature was shaped mainly by the people who were editing it, by the people funding it at Macmillan and Company. And certainly those are influential people who appear in the story. But the story of nature is in many ways the story of its contributors. In the 19th century, um, after its foundation, it became a place for British researchers to talk to each other. Um, The letters to the editor column in particular was filled with back and forth discussions um, between scientists or men of science, as they preferred to call themselves back then. Um, They would argue with each other in the letters to the editor. And that was one of the central functions of nature. It was a forum for scientific debate, uh, sometimes taking on a very passionate and personal tone that we don't necessarily associate with modern scientific writing.
1: And this is um, <laughs> this reminds me. At your conclusion, you you quote one of the editors, one of the two time editors of, of the journal, John Maddox, who was probably also, in my impression anyway, one of the more flamboyant and personality filled editors of of Nature's past. <laughs> um, he, he gives his wry comment uh, of a journal being a passive means of communication, which. Um, he really means ironic because he says it, it's, it's just it's not that way. And I think, you know, organizations uh, today such as Retraction Watch would also very much agree with him. You know, it's not that way. <laughs> but but I w- what I would um, be interested to hear about is through the history and maybe even up until today, your view on what is exactly, say, the distribution of roles between referees, editors, authors, readers publishing executives and so on because I think and the reason I'm asking it this way is because I think today the publishing scientists the submitting scientists would be kind of especially to a magazine a journal like like nature that you know rejects about 92 percent of uh, of submissions that they would be surprised to hear that it was the contributors and the readership who shaped the um, the journal.
0: Yes, I think that is surprising to people who um, sort of view the editorial staff at Nature today as uh, these kind of all-powerful gatekeepers of scientific success. I love the list you just gave of all of the people who are involved in making a journal, because I think that that can be one of the things that we lose sight of when discussing modern scholarly communication. The professional advancement of scientists is so heavily dependent on being published in these peer-reviewed journals. And depending on where you are, um, your your tenure, your promotion, um, even just getting hired can depend heavily on getting into a particular type of journal, a prestigious journal that rejects many submissions. And so it can seem like the power to shape scholarly communication is only in the hands of the editors and in the hands of the anonymous referees who review papers, But looking at the history of scientific publication, you really see a story where a lot more figures are influential in shaping the way that the scholarly scientific journal developed. And you you see stories like that of nature where it was really the contributors' needs and interests that drove some significant changes in the format and audience of the journal. Um, one of the really interesting things to me about Nature's story was what I learned about the history of the refereeing system while, while working on this book. Um, in 1869, when Norman Lockyer began the journal, uh, Nature did not have anything that we would recognize as a refereeing system. He might occasionally consult outsiders, people who didn't work for the journal, for opinions on particular papers. But Nature was a commercial for-profit journal, and throughout his communication with Macmillan and company, you see Lockyer and the Macmillans going back and forth about whether or not nature is profitable. That's really important to them. The magazine has to go out on time. It has to go out under um, under budget. It needs to sell as much advertising as possible. And that's really where Lockyer's attention is, not so much on arranging for refereeing of any articles. And in fact, that would have been pretty typical for any commercial publication at the time. In the 19th century, you really only see refereeing at places like the philosophical transactions of the Royal Society of London, what we call learned society periodicals.
1: Right, and and this is a trend that carries on as as you make clear in the book, right up and through the nineteen sixties and seventies, there were still very important articles that were going through Nature's publication process without referees.
0: So that's absolutely true. Um, well into the twentieth century, Nature was publishing articles that had not gone through a refereeing process. Um, probably the most famous paper that Nature has ever printed, the the nineteen fifty three. Uh, double helix structure by James Watson and Francis Crick uh, was never refereed. Um, It was recommended to the editors of Nature by the head of the Cavendish laboratory. And to them, that was good enough. They were told that this was important by someone they trusted, uh, somebody who was not disinterested in the fate of that paper, by the way. So this was not exactly an unbiased source telling them that this was a big discovery and they should get it into print as fast as possible. But it never went to outside referees. Um, they printed those DNA papers. There were actually three DNA papers, the Watson-Crick paper, one by Rosalind Franklin and Ray Gosling, and one by Maurice Wilkins. Um, and they printed all those three papers without external refereeing within about a month of submission.
1: Yeah, I mean, what I found really interesting is the uh, Brimble and uh, Gale period of editorship, which covers pretty much that period you're talking about. So the 1940s, 1950s, a bit of the 1960s. Um, you quote one or two different times about the dullness of their, <laughs> their period, but 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 what strikes me right now in this connection is that. They were also somewhat criticized for um, just sort of printing anything that someone might have recommended. So, this inside chain of connections, these people who, you know, could, would, would at least from their perhaps interested perspective, stand behind the science was enough for them. And, and in a way, that's kind of what peer review is. So, I mean, peer review is something that was still very much in development.
0: I feel bad for Brimble and Gale in a way, because I think that they they don't come across as terribly um, uh, energetic in the book. I think what happens with Brimble and Gale is that they start editing Nature in 1939. And right away, they are thrown into the crisis of the Second World War. There are paper shortages. The London Blitz is going on. Um, it, it's just it, it it feels like almost like stepping into a giant new job just as the coronavirus pandemic um gets started. It it really shapes the way Brimble and Gale approach the job thereafter, I think. And they tend to trust people who they view as experts to recommend good papers to them. If the head of the Cavendish Laboratory tells Brimble and Gale that this paper is good, they're probably just gonna print it without really investigating further. Um, and that's something that I heard from the people that I interviewed about nature's history during this period, that they would kind of print anything if it came recommended by the right people. And that also meant that submissions that were not coming from the right people, submissions that were coming from outside of their immediate British network were were more likely to be rejected or more likely to just sit in their files for months and months and months. Um, When John Maddox came to the editorship of Nature in the 1960s, he found an enormous backlog of papers waiting for him that had just never received a reply about whether or not they were going to be published.
1: You just referred uh, to your sources and people that you interviewed. Uh, this is an interesting point, especially for history. Uh, it's an interesting point in your history as well. You you give uh, space in the introduction to what your sources are and what they afforded you and where the limitations were. Per- perhaps that would be an interesting point, just to sort of uh, for the listeners give give a view as to uh, what the research was ba- being based on.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So for the 20th century, I was very, very lucky to have a number of people who were generous with their time in letting me interview them about their experience. Um, Mary Sheehan, who was John Maddox's longtime assistant who sat down with me at her home in London, and we talked for a long time about her work there, about her experience working with John. Uh, Brenda Maddox, Maddox, John's wife, um, let me look through his personal papers, and I got to interview her. I interviewed several people who had worked at Nature. For the 19th century portions of the book, um, I encountered something pretty unpleasant early in my research. Um, When nature moved offices in the 1960s, they apparently threw out everything. (laughs) And as a historian, I have to tell you, that just broke my heart. I was a graduate student at the time, and I I spent about three days thinking, oh, no, I have to change my dissertation topic. I'm never going to be able to write this book. And so, what I ended up doing was pivoting to the personal papers of editors and prominent contributors, and also to the papers of Macmillan and Company that had been preserved in a couple of different archives. So, I wasn't able to get the kind of letters that I'd been hoping for of people writing directly to the Nature editorial staff, but it turned out that a lot of correspondence about Nature had been preserved in smaller pockets at different archives. So, I had to be a little, um, I had to go to a few more more uh, archives than I'd anticipated when I first started the project but in the end it turns out that people were talking about nature even if they weren't speaking directly to the magazine
1: that's I mean, in the 1960s, I I would have thought that nature would have recognized what it was and perhaps have held on to its archives. No, I mean, isn't that that just one of those things that you would think, oh, man, who dropped the ball there?
0: You know, it's a funny thing. I I think that... um, Not all scientists are historically minded in that way. Um, I I remember going to the science library at Princeton um, when I was a graduate student and just reading back issues of nature. I pulled the paper issues off the shelf because I wanted to see things like advertisements that don't necessarily scan and digitize well um and I, I I wanted to sort of see what the size of the the pages were like I wanted to handle what my readers would have been handling in the nineteenth century and after a few weeks of this uh one of the librarians came up to me and said very confused, you know those are online right <laughs> And so I think that it, it may have just been a view that that stuff is old and we don't need it anymore. And we're overwhelmed with paper anyway. So why would we keep all of this stuff from the 19th century? Um, I think there, there was an effort to preserve some archives in the 70s under David Davies, but uh, we, we weren't able to track those down either. So it, it may also just be a question of not, not prioritizing that particular kind of task.
1: So I'm sure there's plenty of listeners who um, are also wondering a little bit about your, you know, desire to go in and actually touch the magazines and see them and and, and see the advertisements for things from, you know, <laughs> decades ago. <laughs> but I mean, as a historian, I mean, that was obviously, you know, the natural move. And I think that, I just think that's wonderful. I think it's wonderful that, you know, I mean, we've come so far. The, the end of your book brings us up with some views to the present. Um, you you do really kind of want to end off in about 1995, 2000, mm-hmm. maybe at the latest, um, saying that, and, uh this, this I find interesting um, to sort of talk about historiography for a moment, saying that it makes generally, I had written the quote down, but I can't find it at the moment, but it makes generally the uh, historian somewhat, ah, here it is. Historians are often uneasy evaluating the recent past because the consequences of recent changes are still working themselves out. So the 2000 period up to today or up to 2015 was a little bit off limits. Uh, could, could, could you perhaps I- explain that hist- that historian's thinking to the listeners?
0: Yeah, it's, it's an active question among historians. How do you write the history of the recent past or uh, the history of the present, as my, my friend Kathleen Blue at the University of Chicago sometimes calls it? Um, for me, I saw the book as a history of nature as a print journal. It was, nature was founded at the very moment when the print scientific journal was becoming the primary form of scientific communication. Um, I followed nature as an object in print up through the 1980s and the 1990s, and it seemed like a, a natural ending point to bring the story I was telling to a close at the moment when nature started to seriously move into the digital realm. Um, and I did touch on some of the uh, the consequences and processes of bringing nature online in the conclusion, but I do think the book is mostly a history of nature as a print journal. And that's partly because that, that does tend to be what historians are more comfortable with, um, working with events that are far enough in the past that you can make statements about the consequences of the changes that you're describing. You can kind of bring those historical skills to bear on explaining why what you're talking about is significant. Is this because and one of the...
1: Yeah, go on, go on. Let, let me interrupt. Oh,
0: yeah. Yeah. I I, um, I was just going to say that one of the really interesting things to me um, about writing that section on digitization and the internet for, for nature... Was that when I talked to members of the staff? They all remembered that in 1995, they, they didn't really feel like having nature on a web page was a very significant change. It just sort of felt like they were taking the print magazine and putting a, a version of it online, and it was just one more way of getting it all out there, as I think one of one of my sources put it. But. Today, that's it's very different. In the, the experience of reading nature on the webpage is very different from the experience of getting your issue of nature and paging through it section by section. You don't get those last minute updates that are possible on the internet if you're just focusing on it as a print magazine. And I think that more and more people are getting most or all of their scientific literature on a computer screen or on an e-reader screen, and I think that that is going to be one of the major stories to be told about scientific communication in the years to come.
1: Yeah, I think I think the nineteen nineties were. It might be more theoretically a question of form or format, and I think in the 1990s the internet was still just offering a different form for the format of the journal or the book, whereas I think we've entered in at the very latest from 2010 on, with the internet being, you know, really a different format. Yeah, yes. uh, as as you say, you, you you find journal articles, you don't go through journals anymore really but 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 the but the question i'm i'm sorry the the question about the historiography very very much interests me and in, in, because you you do spend time in the beginning of the book reflecting on this i don't want to uh i'm speaking from your perspective <laughs> I, I don't <laughs> want to make it um that i i don't want what i say to seem uncritical that um, I'm saying it's either good or bad. I want it to be placed out there neutrally as it had happened. And, and, and as I said, this is something that very much is is, the book succeeds at, Uh, as I said, it it puts me back in a sense, almost like a novel into that time, which, which is what I really enjoyed. But I suppose the, the question that I'm getting at is you have to lose your perspective of today to be able to enter into that perspective of yesterday. And is it the limitation – is is this history of the present limited by the fact that if you lose the perspective of the today, which perspective are you supposed to take? It's almost like a logical conundrum, isn't it?
0: Yes. I mean, I, I think that one of the historians' tasks is to kind of um, – put yourself in the shoes of your historical actors and really think about what it was like to exist in the past. And when you're writing the the history of things that are still happening right now, you don't really do that in the same way. And I think different historians have different levels of comfort with that. I think that... Um, there are people doing really wonderful work that does really lead up to the present day and does seek to connect to issues that we're grappling with right now. Um, so in, in some ways, I think that uh, the, the decision to not investigate this ongoing transition to online journal consumption is, is, is almost a personal preference for me, that uh, in, in some ways I feel most at home when I'm thinking about history before about 1990.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, there is a lot of closure. I mean, if you think of uh, nature before, uh, essentially the year, let's say 2000, I mean, something else has happened in the past two decades um, across uh, scientific literature, I would say. So, I mean, uh, the book rounds off uh, beautifully in that sense. I'd like to bring us back a bit further into history, but I suppose I'll do it again from the present. Um, You're right, again, in um, in the conclusion, on uh, the digital revolution, you write, the growth of online publishing has placed scientific communication in a moment of transition, not unlike the moment in the 19th century when the scientific journal rose as the dominant form of communication. And I stress this not unlike because I actually would like to explore that. How how, how would you rate these two major growths or major changes in in, in scientific publishing?
0: That's a great question. The most obvious parallel for me is the fact that it is a change in format. So in the 19th century, um, so let's say about 1800 to eighteen fifty. Researchers published their results in a variety of formats. Um, you could publish your results as a pamphlet. You could um, announce your results at a, uh, in a presentation at a scientific conference. You could write a journal article, and a lot of people did. You could also write a monograph, a long book. Um, the example I always use there is Charles Darwin's On the Origin of Species. But by the end of the 19th century, Researchers were publishing their work entirely as scientific journal, uh, almost entirely as scientific journal articles. So there's this big shift in the format of scientific communication. We go from a system where there are lots of different types of writing about scientific research results from qualified researchers to a form where there's really only one format the scientific journal article. And part of that is enabled by advances in the printing press. And uh, to any readers who are interested in uh, how the printing press changed in the 19th century, I really recommend Eileen Fife's "Steam-Powered Knowledge," which is a wonderful book on uh, steam-powered printing during uh, during the 19th century. And so, in terms of parallels with the shift to digital. Um, I see a similar change in the way people are consuming writing about scientific research. We've gone from a for, from a system where most people learn about research from print journals, uh, you know, journals that come in the mail. You sit down with them and maybe a cup of coffee, and you page through the latest issue of Nature or Physical Review Letters or the Journal of Physical Chemistry B, whichever journals you you consider most relevant to your field. We've now shifted to a system where people tend to consume individual articles that are most specifically relevant to their research. I don't think there are a lot of scientists who sit down with an issue of a journal and look through each paper anymore. It's now a much more targeted digital search for specific papers of interest rather than excitement to read the latest issue of a specific journal. And so that shift in the way that people are reading about scientific research results, I think, puts us in the same kind of moment where researchers want something different from their scientific journal articles. And I think that has the power to shape major changes in the way science is communicated. And I think in a lot of ways, it already has begun to shape the way science is communicated.
2: slash nbn50 to get 50% off.
1: What you say there, researchers want something different, is is, is just fantastic. And I think you've really captured um, that parallel, well, pa- I mean, analogy between the two moments in, in the history of scientific publishing. I mean, on the one side that it comes faster and smaller, the publications, and mm-hmm. it's perhaps slightly more diversified. And we've entered into a moment of even faster with more specialization and targeting. And this is, again, one of those brilliant illustrations of how important formats and publishing are to scientific knowledge, that you are, let's say, going deeper and deeper into your area of specialization without necessarily having a view beyond you know the the horizon of that narrowly drawn horizon of that area i think that's a characterization of much of what's going on in science at the moment and it wouldn't have been that way necessarily even just 80 years ago
0: yeah i think it it very much was not that way in the 19th century if you look at someone like norman lockyer he was an astronomer that was his field of specialization he never would have claimed to be a research biologist but lockyer felt perfectly qualified to decide what should be printed in nature, no matter what field it came from, even if it wasn't about astronomy or physics or anything where he had research expertise. Today, nature has dedicated staffers who usually have PhDs in the field where they're reading papers. And I I think that that's been one of the challenges for nature, being the type of journal that it is. We've seen a system where journals have become increasingly specialized. We've gone from having one physical review to physical reviews A through F at this point. I'm I'm forgetting how many physical reviews there are now, but journals have gone from being a journal about all of physics to a journal about this specific area of physics. Uh, You see the same kinds of things in psychology and biology, but... Nature has remained a single unitary publication that hopes to cover interesting findings from all areas of science. And so they, they've had to acquire a much larger staff in order to be able to do that because science is so specialized.
1: I, I would really like to explore this, though, a little bit more because its it, I find it just such a fashion, fascinating question. It's almost one of these chicken and egg questions, in a sense, because... I mean, this is really what my podcast tries to get at, this how knowledge gets known, yeah? as, as I say in the byline. And it would seem that if we just take these two moments, which seem which seem very much to be decisive, end of the 19th century and beginning of the 21st century, and we have these two shifts. Yeah, we've got the, let's say, fast and diversified shift, and we've got the really fast and specialized shift that we'll pause it. That's what's going on. It may, it may well need further research to see if that's actually the case, but we can, we can you know, just sort of uh, entertain this idea. Then it makes, it makes me wonder anyway, it, which, which is driving this? Because this is part of what your research gets at. You, you, you find the contributors, the scientific community seem to be shaping the publication outlet. But I, I doubt that it's, it's monodirectional. I wonder how much it is that the actual type of research requires a different format as well.
0: Yes. And you're absolutely right that changes in scientific communication are never monodirectional, or at least in in my experience as a historian studying these things, I have yet to find a case where I feel like they're monodirectional. Um, I think that's something that's Sometimes underestimated in considering shifts in scientific publication are um, professional concerns. So, in the 19th century, one of the reasons that nature shifts from being a publication for laymen to being a publication for scientific researchers is that scientific researchers find it much more professionally valuable to write for each other. Um, Early in the 19th century, um, prominent researchers like Thomas Huxley found it very valuable to write for broad audiences because that was a way to earn money and advance their careers. By the end of the 19th century, science was stable enough and established enough as a profession that researchers didn't really find the same benefit in writing for a broad audience of laymen. Their professional advancement came from their colleagues, and so that's why they were much more interested in writing for each other. Huh. Today, the, the intense professional pressure that's put on young scientists and really scientists at any stage in their career to publish, I think, is, is sometimes underrated as a driving factor of the way scientific communication and scientific publishing works.
1: It's really funny, the words that you use there, Uh, words like valuable values and benefits to scientists, um, because these are the exact terms in which people in writing studies would be talking about the communication of science, the way of getting your research into somebody else's area of attention, or as the metaphor often goes, into the conversation that other communities are having, whether it's uh, the community of of editors at a particular journal or a set of journals, specialist field journals, whether it's um, the referees you happen to, by chance, I mean, we don't have influence on these things, but uh, (laughs) happen to get, or your readers later on so that citations come. So in other words, I often describe it uh, to people I teach writing to, that it's making your research their research, which is a tough switch often to do. Um, But it is getting directly at this issue of valuable that you're talking about in benefits. And it would seem that those are the drivers of these sorts of major shifts in scientific thinking about uh, how it is that, uh, you know, we do this at all right? <laughs> that we do science, that we call ourselves scientists, another thing that you explore in the book. So, I mean, to, to, to bring the question around so it's a little bit more concrete, I mean, this end of the 19th century and this beginning of the 21st century seem to be moments when those sets of values, the mores of the communities of science are, are by necessity, whether that's a, as you say, professional necessity or a research object necessity in flux.
0: Yes. And I I think that that's exactly the parallel I see. And uh, so Alex Cesar, who is a historian at Harvard, um, wrote a fantastic recent book on the history of the scientific journal. I've, um, I've heard Alex in talks say that scientific communication tends to get reshaped at moments when scientists, and I'll use that word um, are redefining their relationship to society and and sometimes it points where there is a perceived moment of crisis in the relationship between scientists and the society at large. And so yeah, I, I think that that's that's another parallel that researchers need to think about what publication is doing for them and if they decide that publication needs to do something different, that's often a moment where we start to see change,
1: and the publication also needs to do something different from them because they see what they're doing as something different. I, th- I think a yes. wonderful illustration of this comes up in your exploration. There's many different uh, wonderful stories that you that you give us as uh, you know surrounding nature and and the influence that nature had or who had influence on nature. but Herbert Spencer comes to mind because this, a period of 1870s 1880s is is so critical for what we might call present day science as opposed to modern science modern science stretches back centuries present day science has a slightly different character i would probably say and and the controversy surrounding him there was his his publication of uh, first principles one of his books and the whole controversy that went on for months in the pages of nature really revolved around his qualifications to be talking about physics at all <laughs>
0: Yes, it absolutely did. And I think that Spencer was, was quite um, put out by that criticism because he was of a generation where that wasn't a criticism he was expecting, that he was a qualified researcher. He was someone who was widely published on scientific topics. And the idea that he might not have the right to speak about physics was quite foreign to him but there was a younger generation of uh, physicists who felt that they had made their whole careers in physics and they were the ones qualified to talk about these topics. And they didn't understand why Herbert Spencer was jumping in here to intervene in what they very much saw as their own domain. So it's a moment where you really see the increasing specialization of science. You see that you can't really be a generalist anymore in the way that Spencer thought of himself as being a generalist and expect to be taken seriously by people who worked exclusively on physics problems.
1: Yeah, and you see it in, uh, you, you You quote from many different letters and also, of course, from Nature and the, in the uh, letters to the editors there um, to give us a real feel for, in what terms were the people back then, discussing these things and then, of course, thinking about these things. Just um, a short 10 or 15 years later in 1891, Raphael uh, Meldola, if I'm saying the name right, talks about how um, somebody was uh, arguing in an entirely literary fashion. And that, again, is – I mean, these are symptoms, aren't they? They're they're, they're coming through in a way that shows – something is is moving under the surface and not everyone is yet on board. You, you, you give us a nice number for this. You show us that it was essentially the generation of the 1840s, 1850s, that were the new or what we would say present-day scientists, perhaps.
0: Yes, yes. It's really that generation um, born in uh, the 1840s that comes of age in a moment where they can expect to Have a stable scientific career where they are paid for teaching science and they are paid for doing scientific research. That was an opportunity that previous generations generally didn't have available to them. So, someone like Thomas Huxley built his career partly on writing very literary essays for laymen and getting paid to do so. That was part of how he funded his scientific inquiry by getting paid for his writing. And so Members of this older generation were very accustomed to having to build their careers in whatever way that they could. They, they usually looked to very diverse sources of income. They usually developed very diverse interests to go along with that. And it's very different from this younger generation who can expect to be hired as something like a professor of physics and spend their life working on just physics. And you really see their, their, uh, their, their heads butting at different points in nature as the older generation tries to practice science in the way that they built their scientific careers. And the younger generation says, no, 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 that's not your field. You're not an expert here in the way that I am, which of course is uh, completely incomprehensible to, to someone like Spencer, <laughs>
1: exactly yeah and and it, but it's also what makes that debate that went on even up through the 19 hundreds what i mean by that is 191909 1900 right before the first world war the, the, there was this period of what it is to be a scientific worker a scientist however it was called a, a man of science i mean what <laughs> we would just simply call today a scientist and it would seem that this was really Yes, as, as, as we've been saying again and again, one of those turning points professionally, as you've made very clear, I would, I would wonder also whether or not it was really the field or the fields themselves evolving to a point, the state of knowledge and the methods and the discoveries, uh, the radioactivity discoveries, for instance, at the turn of the century, weren't now far enough so that science, science could be sort of re-theorized given a, let's say, new perspective, even, if you like, on the world, where central issues of applied versus basic were being brought up that might not even have made any sense in the 18th century, or between induction and, let's say, maybe forerunners to a critical rationalism of Karl Popper, which was still off on the horizon yet, where it's not about truth as in truth for all time, but it's about truth as in what we know is not true. So the sorts of things that we would recognize as you know, scientific research, lab work, field work today.
0: Yes, absolutely. And you really see those changing standards of what counts as a valid contribution to science um, being reflected in the pages of nature and being in some cases worked out in the pages of nature. Uh, one of the examples that I use in the book is that of the Duke of Argyle who, uh, he was a member of the Royal Society. He, um, was someone who had done original scientific research as a younger man, but eventually made his career mostly in politics and in writing. And Argyle was skeptical of some of the claims of Darwinian evolution. He he wasn't entirely sold on the theory of evolution by natural selection. And for a while, his thoughts on that topic were, were taken seriously by people who were members of places like the Royal Society of London. But late in the 19th century, when he tries to participate in debates about nature on this question, uh, a younger generation of contributors says, you're just rehashing things that other people have said. You're not contributing anything original of your own. You are not a scientific researcher. You don't belong in this discussion. And that's one of the fascinating things about nature to me, the way that it serves as a place where members of the scientific community define who is and is not qualified to talk about science.
1: And then it becomes fairly soon after that where you talk about science. Um, You talk about, for instance, uh, Ernest uh, Rutherford, who... Often Canada has some of the best facilities for the sort of uh, research that he wants to do, probably better than he might have even gotten in Britain. And yet his orientation was entirely towards that prestigious center, that prestigious, we might call it colonial center still at that point, but certainly prestigious pages of uh, nature, something which is still also, I would say, around the world, very understandable to people.
0: Yes. And what, so I love the Rutherford story because he doesn't choose nature because he sees it as prestigious necessarily. In fact, I would argue that around the time Rutherford starts sending his articles to nature, nature is not particularly prestigious, especially when you consider it um, in contrast to something like the Philosophical Magazine, which I think was was much more highly regarded among physicists at the time. Rutherford picks nature because it's fast Rutherford picks nature because he wants to get his results in print as quickly as possible because he's competing with people like the Curies in Paris, and he wants to make sure that he doesn't lose out on credit for discoveries in radioactivity, which is a really fast-moving field. But you're absolutely right about the national orientation. Um, you could imagine Rutherford saying, okay, I have to get my stuff into print as quickly as possible. I'm going to publish it on this side of the Atlantic, maybe in science, which is published in New York, maybe in a Canadian journal. But Rutherford also really wants his papers to be read by the right sort of people, which to his mind are the people in the major research centers in Europe. And so publishing in science or publishing in a Canadian journal doesn't really seem to have occurred to him. He picks nature because it's fast, but he also picks it because it's British.
1: And that's what's so amazing, because this is this is not uh, very far after, let's say, the beginning of the end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th century, where so much of science was still being published let's say in three languages right german french and english and mm-hmm. in many nations so i mean these these are developments that you would look for a center as rutherford had and perhaps even a language although he didn't need to i mean being a, a, a you know a speaker of english himself but that you would look for that as your outlet because of reaching the right people as you say and it was just a generation back where might not have been on the top uh, uh, top on people's minds.
0: Yes, and you bring up a really interesting point about language as well, because I, I think that English was only really starting to become at that moment a significant language for scientific publication. German was um, the, the most uh, the, sort of the most essential scientific language for most researchers in the nineteenth century. Um, Scientific Babble by Michael Gordon, who was my graduate advisor, tells the story of how English became the dominant language of science. And it's a really fascinating story. But it's it's not until after the Second World War that English really becomes a kind of the 800-pound gorilla of the scientific languages world. <laughs> <laughs>
1: um, for all this prestige and and and, and nature as the center of i do I do have to hark back to uh, you, you, there's there's wonderful illustrations in this book uh, that I definitely want to make my uh, listeners aware of. We have here also on uh, page twenty the first page of the first Nature, and let it be known. The first lines in nature are from William Wordsworth, No other to the solid ground of Nature trusts the mind, which builds for eye. yeah. And then we have a yeah. complete page of. Wolfgang Goethe. <laughs> I mean, I couldn't have expected. I would, I would never have expected these things. <laughs> but, but the, there is one interesting quote that comes up, and this isn't from the pages. This is again from correspondence. Uh, a Joseph Hooker, right before the first uh, issue, the one I was just referring to, came out. He says, and this intrigued me because it. I don't know. I, I would. I would like to hear you parse it. I guess he, he says. By all means, make public my goodwill to the Lockyer periodical, by which he means nature. But the failure of scientific periodicals patronized by men of Mark have been dismal. And then he says, I do not see how a really scientific man can find the time to conduct the periodical scientifically or the brains to go over the mass of trash. <laughs> and it's this last <laughs> sentence with this conducted scientifically in the mass of trash. I... I had to ponder what he was talking about, particularly with conducting it scientifically.
0: Yes. I've wondered, too, what what exactly Hooker meant by that. Um, I think that Hooker is essentially saying, good luck, but I think you're going to fail. (laughs) And I think you're going to fail because I don't really see how you can possibly reach a broad audience while still holding to that core of scientific respectability so here again you you see the the, the very one of the very first indications that i found of this idea that there's communication to the public and there's communication to researchers and communication to researchers can be done seriously and scientifically and respectably but if you're trying to communicate to the public good luck you're going to find yourself sorting through a bunch of garbage trying to find something that's scientifically respectable and able to be understood by a layman.
2: Hmm.
0: And I I think that notably, that's one of Lockyer's main motivations when founding the journal. Um, Lockyer did not have a high opinion of most science writers, uh, people who were not scientifically trained, but were writing about science for public audiences. Uh, he he thought that a lot of what they were publishing about science was inaccurate and he really wanted to have a magazine that was researchers talking about science for laymen. So that people in parliament, uh, people with elevated social status, people with influence could get accurate information about science from people who knew what they were talking about. So his vision for nature was very much that it would be picked up by those men of Mark that Hooker was talking about. And I, I think Hooker identified something that actually did become a, pretty quickly a point of tension for nature. This The fact that Lockyer wanted a lay audience, but wanted it to be written by researchers. And I think that Hooker rightly identified the fact that that was going to be much more difficult than Lockyer was anticipating.
1: Mm, yeah, and I mean, it's uh, any science communicator today will tell you that it is certainly a challenge, and, and it's something that comes up uh, in in the uh, story of Nature with the British uh, Science Guild, for instance, and one of the uh, um, Gregory, um, one of the yes. editors, and his role in that. There's there's so many areas that we. Um, could cover. I, 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 I encourage readers to turn to the book. You find out about uh, the shift in uh, which, which uh, you, Melinda, were just referring to—the shift in views of Germany before and after World War One. We find out about how international is science if an entire Soviet bloc is left out. Um, <laughs> We find out about um, you know the uh, the differences between how nature brought the radioactivity adva- advances in science and the genetics advances in science uh, to their readerships. Um, so many of these just fascinating stories, which which fill out the entire picture of this journal and science from over the last hundred and fifty years. Essentially, I I think I'd like to bring us one last time up into the present because you in the conclusion refer to new publishing ventures so archive.org or plus ones and when i was reading about plus one i was i was intrigued again by a question as to plus ones sort of modus operandi is is that we test the science we vet it for soundness and let the importance be decided you know by the research community and it's interesting to see that over much of nature's um history that was kind of how it was operating. And it makes me wonder whether or not PLOS One is picking up on a thread in the development of science and just merely elaborating on it, or was this really truly an innovation in publishing?
0: I think it's both. I think they were finding a need in the scientific community. They were finding a desire for a place that would publish sound results without asking their referees to determine in advance what was and was not going to be significant. So the thing with a journal like Nature that publishes papers from all across scientific fields is that to get into the pages of Nature, you have to show that your work is not just important to your subfield, is not just important to your discipline, It's of interest across scientific disciplines and potentially also to to the layman who still pick up nature for the uh, kind of the front half, the news articles and the, the editorials. And so I think that significance has become something that is a criterion for publishing in a lot of the most prestigious scientific journals. And it's a criterion of frustration to a lot of scientists who think that results aren't necessarily significant right away or their significance may not be obvious right away. And so I think PLOS One was kind of answering that frustration among scientists and saying, you know what, we're going to completely put aside the idea of whether or not this is significant or might lead to other results. We're just going to ask our referees whether the science is sound. And so I I think it's both. I think they're both innovating and publishing, but I think they were also taking, drawing that innovation, um, the inspiration for it, from a very real desire among scientists.
1: You speak um, in uh, the note to the reader as to the audiences that you'd like to reach with your book. And you say that one would be, of course, regular readers of nature. (laughs) No surprises there. Um, But then also practicing scientists, science uh, science journalists, and others who love science. I think you're going to reach all of these. But um, what was it that motivated you to... Bring history to these readers now.
0: Gosh. So I'll, I'll be honest. Um, a lot of the motives that I talked about earlier in the interview when I talked about the need for professional advancement and how that shapes publication decisions, those apply to historians as well. Uh, for historians, um, we are what we call a book discipline. And publishing a book about your historical work is Seen as a major requirement for tenure at a place like the University of Maryland, and so what, one of the reasons that it's it's a book and not just a series of articles somewhere is because of professional pressures within my own field. Uh, so I, I just want to acknowledge that I am definitely not exempt from any of the uh, the kinds of um, influence that I, that apply to scientists. Those those influences apply to historians too, in slightly different form. Uh, But I also think that one of the reasons I got interested in the history of science was that I love science and I love learning about scientists. I love learning about all kinds of different scientific theories. And something that appealed to me about nature specifically was the fact that it was a journal that had papers on evolutionary theory and radioactivity and the age of the earth. And, uh, you know, the precise definition of engineering units um, in in an engineering textbook, which there there was a very long correspondence about this in 19th century nature, uh, engineering units. And so nature just was an opportunity to learn so much about so many different fields of science.
1: That's great. That's great. I mean, you give us a very thorough picture of nature, and you do, uh, even in the conclusion, bring us up uh, to the present. And I think you really also put your finger on the pulse of, of this one particular journal by noting that it is still a combination, as it always has been, of its speed of publication and its fluctuations in prestige, and it mm-hmm. certainly seems to be at a peak at the moment. And it's on these variables that you that you pause that you open to the reader, what sort of a future lies ahead for nature, Nothing being given, right? as as the events of the world go?
0: Yes, And I think that it it is not a given that in ten years or fifteen years or twenty years or or you know certainly not in fifty years, that a paper in nature will still be the kind of crown jewel of a scientist's CV. I think that uh, scientific publication is always reshaping itself according to the the needs and desires and the pressures of the scientific community. That it can be very easy to think, oh, those editors of nature, they, they hold the keys to my career and their future. But the scientific community as a whole holds the keys to nature's future in their hands as well it's never monodirectional to, to bring up an idea from, from earlier in the interview.
1: Wonderfully put. Great. That's well, Melinda, you've been very generous with your time. Um, I do have one last question though, for you. And, and this is about the research in this area. You mentioned, for instance, Alex Cesar, who I've also interviewed here on on the podcast, and he gives a wonderful book of the scientific journal throughout the 19th century, looking um, as, as you explained as to how that mirrored what was also going on in science, changing of profession, changing of research objects, and so on. You've given us now a wonderful book that has honed in on one particular journal, an extremely important journal. that shapes so much of what we think about when we think about science today. And I suppose my question is, moving forward now, what, what would you say the history of science would best take as a next step? Would it be a new direction? Or would it be more coverage of, let's say, a journal like Science or Cell or a Field Journal or, I guess I leave it up to you, a n- new direction or, or more coverage in the same area? Where, where would you see the best move from here?
0: Oh, Wow. So there actually, it was a wonderful history of science in their centenary issue. Um, it was a, a series of essays by different historians of science uh, looking at different eras of science magazine. So any, any uh, listeners who are interested should, uh, should check that out. Um, in terms of the future of the histories of scientific publishing, I would really love to read a book where someone tackles the impact of the change to online publishing and online reading. I think that that would be certainly a very timely book, and I I think that looking at the moment in the 1990s when so many journals tried, first tried their hands at going online would be a really rich history, kind of an intersection almost of of computer history, communications history, and the history of science. Uh, Speaking for myself, what I'm doing next is working on a history of peer review in the sciences. When looking at nature's history, I was very surprised to find uh, that refereeing had not really been a big part of nature's story until well into the 20th century. That inspired me to look more deeply into the history of refereeing. And that's the book that I'm working on now. I'm looking at how refereeing systems really first arose in the 19th century and became a standardized part of scientific publishing during the Cold War. Well, thank you very much.
1: That is Melinda Baldwin, and her book, Making Nature, The History of a Scientific Journal, is out with the University of Chicago Press. I'm Daniel Shea, and this is goodbye for me to Melinda. Goodbye.
0: Goodbye. Thank you so much for having me.
1: And this is goodbye to all of you. Bye-bye, and until next time here on Scholarly Communication.